2: The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain Select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
3: The cooking always starts with a mortar and pestle. And uh, you would often hear the women singing as they are pounding. And they even throw the the pestle up in the air and they clap with their hands, you know. It's a way to, to also bring a very important ingredient in the cooking process, which is the, the love, you know. Yes, this is music,
2: <laughs> That was Pierre Thiam. He's author of Senegal, Modern Senegalese Recipes from the Source to the Bowl. I'll be speaking with Pierre later in the show. First, it's time to head back to the kitchen at Milk Street to check in with our baking expert, Erica Bruce, about this week's recipe.
4: Hi, Erica. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Chris.
2: So uh, you're the brownie person today, I yes, guess? I, mean, I am. I, we love brownies, but the notion of adding something a little bitter or savory to a brownie is something that's popular. Yes. And you've spent some time
4: doing that. I have, yes. We really like the combination of the flavors of bitter and sweet together. Uh, And so we took our inspiration for these brownies from a Middle Eastern version that uses tahini. Tahini is a Middle Eastern paste that's made from sesame seeds. Think like peanut butter, but bitter in a pleasant way. And it's widely available now in U.S. markets. And a lot of people might recognize it um, as a main ingredient of hummus.
2: So when you buy tahini, you want to look at the label, and it should say... Sesame seeds. Yes. And nothing else. Yes.
4: Right? Ideally. Yes. Okay. So for our Tahini swirled brownies, um, I started with, you know, the usual formula for chocolate brownies with, you know, the eggs and the sugar, vanilla, butter. And for the chocolate base, I decided to use a combination of bittersweet chocolate and cocoa powder because that really gave us a deeper flavor. And these are kind of more of a grown up brownie and most Tahini brownies add the tahini to the chocolate base, either by drizzling it on or combining some eggs with the tahini. But I tried this over and over again, and any way I did it, the tahini would either drop to the bottom of the brownies, it would sink down, or it would dissolve into the brownies, and you just couldn't taste it. So instead of adding the tahini to a chocolate base, I reversed it and I decided to add chocolate to a tahini base. You do everything backwards. I, yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. <laughs> so to, to do this, we had to adjust the recipe a little. We had to lower the amount of butter so that the brownies weren't too greasy. Uh, once we did that, we found we could add up to 3 quarters of a cup of tahini to the brownies, which tasted really great. Before I incorporated the chocolate, though, I reserved a small portion of the tahini.
2: So you've mixed tahini and brownie battered together, essentially, and you have some leftover tahini, which you're just gonna eat with a spoon.
4: Yeah, why not? No, actually, we're gonna dollop that on top, and this is what creates the swirl. And you're just gonna put about nine dollops on top, evenly spaced, and the best way to do it is to run the tip of a small paring knife through the dollops a couple of times, not too many times, because you you still wanna be able to see the swirl, and what that does is it really highlights the tahini flavor, it makes it stand out.
2: So these aren't brownies, this is art. (laughs) I like to think so. And so I've eaten about 30 of these in the wow. last couple months. I mean, these are unbelievably good because it's that savory, slightly bitter, you know, sesame taste with chocolate. Yeah. I mean, it really is the perfect marriage. So thank you, and thanks for leaving the plate as you yeah, leave. Yeah, you're
4: welcome. Thank you, Erica.
2: <laughs> you're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website. That's MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also at MilkStreetRadio.com. Now let's take your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? you ready to take some calls? Chris, I sure am. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. What's your question? Can we help you? The question has to
5: do with the uses and the properties of chickpea flour.
6: Okay.
2: Oh, I love chickpea
6: flour. It's one of my new favorite things.
5: I've just started experimenting with it. And I heard about it a while ago because my mother, who was born in Italy, had these very fond memories of this street food. who sounds like a chickpea fritter or something or a crap that so you would get served in paper cones. And I've started working with it, and I'm just curious to know. It seems very versatile and easy to work with. I've made Ottolenghi soca. I've made a farinata. I've got a panisa up next. So I'm just wondering about more of its properties, other ways to use it. Can you make a tart dough with it? Can you make crepes with it? Can you use it to dust food before frying? I mean, I don't have a gluten problem, but I have friends who do, so it would be great for them, and I'm just curious about more ways to use
2: it. Uh, Sure, it's used as a coating in Indian cuisine, you know, for fritters, and you use that with liquid to make a batter. As you said, it's good for flatbreads. Actually, we just did a flatbread recipe In the kitchen, we just throw everything in a food processor, let it sit half an hour, and then roll them out and cook them in a cast-iron skillet for a couple of minutes. But it's very good as a coating for frying. You're right, it's often used in Indian cooking for that. I don't know about just regular tart pastry. It's not going to absorb liquid the same way, the gluten. As yeah.
6: the flour would, no. no. It's a source of protein. I mean, chickpeas are. Right. You're adding protein, and you're also adding terrific flavor. I know that they're fine for pancakes, they're fine for crepes, you know, because you don't need a lot of gluten, and right. you want it to be tender. And it probably, right. you know, darn, I'd love to try a dough. Would you try a dough and let us know how it works, Jacqueline? Sure.
5: I just last night discovered in one of Mother Joffrey's altar cookbooks. Yes, she's amazing. Uh, something called Dev's which is like a noodle. They look like those little crispy noodles you get with takeout Chinese mm. food. And it's made with chickpea flour, water, and oil Right. that you need. And then push what well, they say through a set, she says through a set maker, or you can use a potato ricer. Nice. Into hot oil. So That's... I may try that, but I'll try the pie down. I'll let you know.
6: You know what? Also, you could just add it to like vegetables when you're sautéing them for just a little bit of extra crunch and flavor at the end. Um oh, that's a good idea. And also, I think that it might help. You know when you add yogurt to a sauce and it separates? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it would help to keep the yogurt, you know, in Indian cuisine, that's the sort of thing they might do. I believe that you can add it to yogurt, and then when you add the yogurt to the sauce, it won't separate out. Oh, it doesn't curl. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Another way to stabilize it.
5: Thank you so much, and I'm very excited about your new magazine, so congratulations.
2: Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for calling.
5: For sure. Thank you.
2: Bye, Jacqueline. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
0: My name's Tim Malonepool.
2: How can we help you?
0: Well, hey, I want to make a duck gumbo, and I want to make a root out of the duck fat, and I'm wondering what the best way is to get all that fat out of the duck before I actually really cook
3: the duck.
2: Well, the, I don't know which question you're asking. If you're asking how to get rid of some of the fat so the duck tastes better when you eat it, I take a duck and actually put it in simmering water for a while, like half an hour. Uh, I do that with a goose as well, and then let it dry, then go ahead and roast it, and that gets out a, a lot of that layer under the skin of fat. If you're talking about getting the fat out to use as fat for a roux, or a gumbo, I would yeah. just go to the store and buy <laughs> duck fat because <laughs> it, it's <laughs> rendered and it's done. There's really no way I can think of, of doing that with a raw duck.
6: If you're making a gumbo and you're going to use the raw duck meat and you're going to sort of shred it anyway and you don't really want the skin, you could take off all the skin and chop it up. We used to do this years ago. I worked at Peter Kump's, which was the precursor to ice. And we used to make grebanus. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. You know, that's the chicken cracklings, Mm -hmm. which is chicken fat. So what you do is you take chicken skin. In this case, you take the duck skin, which is where all the fat is underneath and in. And you chop it up and you combine it with water and you simmer it. And what happens is you the, it. the water pulls out all the fat from the duck, and you end up with a lot of duck fat. So that is something you could do to start with, although it does seem like an awful lot of work. You can order duck fat easily online. D'Artagnan wait, sells wait,
2: wait, wait. it. So you, you take the skin and the fat off the duck. Then what do you do with it? Cook the duck.
6: Oh, well, then you, he's making a gumbo. So oh. then he chop it up, and I imagine sort of stew it. Right, Tim? Exactly. But the only only concern that I have is when you cook a roux, the temperature gets very, very high. For a roux, you know, like a Cajun roux that you cook right. for, you know, till it gets brown. And sure. animal fats don't have a high smoke point. So I don't know if they might get a little acrid tasting there, you know.
0: I've done it with bacon fat and it was fantastic. I'm just thinking a duck gumbo, it would be a cool thing to do with all the extra duck fat,
5: you know.
6: Well, why not? Why not? You know, let me also say this. The interesting thing about duck fat, although it doesn't sound like you're very concerned about the nutrition issue here, you're just looking for good flavor, but actually, Chris, did you know that duck fat has a lot of the same properties as olive oil? I'm not kidding you. Fat is back. No, it is <laughs> back. It. It, it. it only has a <laughs> small proportion of saturated fat. It has mono and poly unsaturated fats. And that's, you know, the whole French paradox where those yeah. people in that part of France live much longer. It's not just because they have the Mediterranean diet. You know, for a while they were so happy we thought it was red wine. But it also could have a lot to do with the duck fat because it has a lot of the same properties you know, you know as what? olive oil. You know
2: what? Science is going my way. I know butter. Wine, butter. Butter's is having a comeback too. Butter. So
6: you know, I think this is a brilliant idea, Tim. Go for it. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks yeah, nice for calling. Yes.
2: You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Pierre Thiam. He's a Senegalese chef and cookbook author who traces many classic American dishes, including gumbo and jambalaya, to his home country.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
6: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly.
0: Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Mo Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to Pierre Thiem. He's author of Senegal, Modern Senegalese Recipes from the Source to the Bowl. The cooking of Senegal is incredibly diverse from north to south, from Vietnamese to Lebanese influences. I started by asking Pierre about the first president of Senegal, who was a poet and a philosopher who believed in a universal civilization. I, I'm very excited about this. I love your book. I'm intrigued by Senegal, and it, it's all the differences from north to south and the different cuisines but you start in the book talking about the first president of Senegal and he envisioned a universal civilization. Could you just explain that to me, who he was and what he meant by that?
3: Oh, his name was Leopold Senghor, or Leopold Sedar Senghor. He, um, we credit him to be the reason why our country is the only African country that's never had a coup. And that's been uh, stable. That's been a democracy, because he was not a, he was not just a president. He was a poet. He was an artist. You know, he was a world class poet who actually left power on his own without losing election. He just left power uh, the the presidency just to go ahead and write his books. So to get back to your question, the universal civilization was a theme that he used to bring back often in his speeches, and he he was a, one of those. People who believe that we were going to get to a point of evolution, humankind will get to a point of evolution where what you would call the universal civilization, where every culture would bring its contribution to the common universal table and we will be sharing, and every culture's contribution would be appreciated and respected because everyone has a valuable contribution. That was, in a nutshell, his philosophy.
2: The, the name Senegal comes from Senegal, which means dugout boat. And uh-huh. I love the notion, if you could explain that we are all in the same boat and should avoid capsizing it. I thought that was, <laughs> exactly. that was pretty nice. Could you just talk about that?
3: Well, absolutely, especially if you visualize the boat. I'm not sure if you, you, can, you can see the boat. I have a few pictures on, the, on my book. But the boat is like a dugout boat. It's a very uh, fragile boat. And uh, the translation for boat is gal, And Sunugal means our boat and it became uh, the the meaning for the name Senegal, you know, that's a boat that anyone who's embarking on that boat has to be part of it, you know, you you cannot capsize the boat and if you make the wrong moves or if you you don't behave properly, you can, uh, you know, the boat is at risk. So we have to see our country as this one boat that we all going the same direction and we, we want to make sure the boat doesn't capsize and we, we call the country our boat, Sunugal.
2: I think I need to move there. We had a poet, <laughs> yes. founding poet president who believed in universal civilization who left under his own will to write books and the it's, concept of the country is that you all need to work together so you don't capsize the boat. I guess it doesn't get much better than that, and you have a lot of immigrant population. You have Vietnamese, Lebanese, oh, so there's yes. a big mix here, right?
3: It's a big mix. It's a it's a big melting pot. You know, Senegal happens to be. Um, it's like a, a, a hub. It's a natural port of entry from the the first arrivals. were like the Portuguese in like 1500. You know, the French came. The Dutch came. But when the French stayed, uh, they also brought with them their colonial empire, and uh, the case the case of Vietnamese that you mentioned, the Vietnamese was part of uh, the colonial French empire, it was called Indochina at the time. Indochine, the Lebanese also just same same story too. We were connected with the French, and they moved to Senegal and uh, the neighboring countries as well, you no know, Cote d'Ivoire. Because like I told you, Senegal was the country is the country the most stable one, so. Wherever there would be some tensions in the neighboring countries, they would have refugees coming to Senegal, and they've they've been there for some time now, bringing their cuisine as well.
2: You know, what really struck me in the book, Senegal, was the range of ingredients and flavors, some of which I didn't expect at all. I mean, I I expected stewed meats and palm oil and peanuts and et cetera, but uh, bitter greens, sorrel and mustard greens, scotch bonnet peppers, selen peppers, ginger, tamarind, coconuts, mangoes— could you just give us uh, an idea of what you know what's for dinner on a tuesday night let's say in the south part of the country
3: well i'm glad you studied with the south cuz that's where I'm, both my parents are from the south <laughs> so in the south of senegal for dinner the the obvious choice would be for everyone would be something we call yassa and yassa is something that's quite simple but uh, so incredibly tasting it's one of the most popular dish in Senegal as a matter of fact in Africa and and it's only three ingredients really pretty much it's like onions lime and rice hmm. and then the protein that you would use the protein could be fish whole fish to to chicken to lamb lamb chops so that's that's optional so the onions it's lots of onions though you know you, I mean you you' going to uh, julien a nice amount of onion, but you mm. slice them and cook them slowly in a pot and you close up the pot and you allow the onions to not only slowly caramelize in the bottom, but they also sweat because of the steam. You have the pot is completely right. closed up, right? And, uh, and it's going to release some juice and at the same time caramelize. And after a little while, after like 10 minutes, leaving it like this in the pot at medium heat, you stir it with a wooden spoon and you, you stir the bottom so the caramelized part rises, and then you, you, you close it back and you add bay leaves and your seasoning, black pepper, a scotch bonnet is like all those things are like optional. And then, halfway through, once your onions have reduced in size in the pot and they're like coming to be like this nice caramelized onion, you add your lemon juice and adjust your seasoning you're going to have this really incredible the sweetness of the onions that have caramelized and the the acidity of the lime juice just works marvels.
2: You mentioned another thing I just found fascinating was the the three rounds of tea. You start with bitter, Mm -hmm. which is like life. (laughs) The (laughs) second is sweet, as you say, like love. And the third is gentle, Uh like the breath of death.
3: Yes. I, I just, I was charmed by that. Well, this is a thing called Ataya. That's the name of the ritual of the tea. And Ataya is, if there's one thing you can bet to see in every Senegalese household, that's that ritual, the tea. And people serve the tea in three cups. Small shot, small cups, you know, like a, a, a shot of liquor. Mm-hmm. So that's the size of the cup. And, uh, the, and, and the tea is really served, it could be served at any time of the day, usually after the meal. But throughout the day, you can go to a household in Senegal and people would offer you that one cup of tea. You know, it could be the first one. The first one is always strong. Like you said, like life, we compare it to life. It's bitter. It's a green tea. Uh, it's it's uh, very strong. There's lots of tea in it and and it's also another thing you have to to note in that ritual the tea has to be served with a certain amount of foam topping the tea in the top of the cup and that foam is prepared by just pouring the the tea from one cup to another. Like, you know, patiently, you'd see the person who makes the tea would be doing it for minutes. You know, the tea is really an opportunity to spend time and and and, 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 and have conversations with everyone around. So the first tea, I said, is strong like life, bitter, strong and bitter. The second one that's a mild, like a little sweeter, but served the same way with the amount of foam. And uh, that symbolizes love, and the third one, sweet, like the breath of death, because uh, we, we we visualize death as like this passage. Death is just part of life, you know, and the death is always present in our culture.
2: That's that's really interesting. Uh the, the the classic pilaf, rice and beef pilaf, which I won't try to pronounce. Could you explain? It just seemed like a wonderful dish. Uh, it's a communal food people eat with their hands. Could you just explain how it's mm-hmm. made and why it's so popular?
3: Yeah, well, the chebujan is is popular because it's probably it would be the, the one of the best tasting dish you've ever had. And how do you spell it's it? Really, Wait,
2: look, how do you spell uh, it and
3: pronounce like, it? Like, like it says Jun. Uh, che like my last name Cham, che uh-huh. cheb means rice. And gen means fish, really. So it sounds like a very simple, straightforward, but it's it's much more than that. So first, the rice, you know, the rice, you know, you can use any rice, really. But uh, traditionally, Senegalese like to use what they call broken rice. And broken rice is really another heritage of colonialism, you know, that uh, the French used to bring this broken rice, which was uh, the the Vietnamese processed rice. And the broken rice is cooked in this broth. It's, It's like a tomato broth, but the tomato broth before has been cooking this fish, you know, a meaty fish that's been stuffed with a parsley mixture. And, uh, and then you cook it slowly inside, and the fish, the, the, the head, the bones, everything. So it's a nice stock already. And in addition with the fish, you have the vegetables. You know, the vegetables could be root vegetables from cassava to carrots to uh, sweet potato. All of it goes into that broth. And then once they're cooked, you, you extract them with the fish. You carefully extract them, to keep them warm and then you add the rice to it oh oh i forget the most important ingredient is the the fermented conch that you add to that broth wow. as well yeah we love fermented we use fermented conch we use fermented beans locust beans so imagine that broth so it's a rich tomato broth which rich in flavor and that's when you add your rice and um, in that sauce as well you have tamarind you know on the side It's just an incredible dish. And um, in Senegal, it's very important to know that eating around the bowl is is something that you would see in pretty much every household. That's our tradition of eating. We eat also with our hands because we also have this belief that the the food tastes better when you eat with your hands. And you will always be invited. Senegal, everywhere you go, you would be invited to share the meal around the bowl because people believe that the more... You share the more you receive.
2: Let's talk about a kitchen in a typical mm-hmm. Senegalese home. Uh, some of the photos I saw, people were cooking on a stone patio. They, they weren't cooking on counters. They, they, they were down there cooking on the ground, essentially. Is that something mm-hmm. that's done sometimes? Uh, or w- w- what would a, a kitchen look like, a typical kitchen?
3: Oh, oh it's, it's done all the time. It's like you have even in the cities where people have modern kitchen in their houses in their. I mean, if they have the space to have a background a backyard, uh, they always have that kitchen that you saw in the, in the in the pictures. So that's um, the the kitchen that we would use to cook traditional meals. You know, some of those meals require the the charcoal, for instance, the flavor that's in it's imparting. Sometimes you don't see it,' you don't, it's difficult to have it in a modern kitchen. So some people, some purists are sticking to it and they, they just like think they have to use that kitchen. Uh, they, or they, oftentimes they're not even comfortable in a modern kitchen.,
2: uh, there was a picture in your book of a very large mortar and pestle. What, what would you pound in an in a oversized mortar and pestle?
3: Oh, so many different things, you know it's like that's our food processor. For instance, the grains, you know, because everything comes fresh, you know, you go to the market, you get the grains and you process it to clean the, the chaff from the rice or for the, from the millet. Then the interesting part about this, this instrument is when there's group cooking, because group cooking, let's say there's a, a name-burning ceremony or there's a wedding. So you would hear that modern pestle early morning, because that's when the women start cooking. And that the cooking always starts with the modern pestle, and uh, they do it in a way that's musical. You know, the modern pestle sounds like a drum at that moment. It's often you would often hear the women singing as they are pounding, and they're pounding to the rhythm of whatever song they're playing. And they even throw the the pestle up in the air and they clap with their hands, you know, and they scratch it back, and it's all beautiful. It's like some recording, right? but it's it's a way to to also bring. A very important ingredient in the cooking process, which is the the love, you know, because they're having fun doing this, they singing, and and it it really really makes a big difference in the finished product. So,
2: so you're a chef. So, what is it you take away from all of this wonderful food and cooking and the different techniques into a restaurant? I mean, how would you what would you extract? A few ideas you'd extract from your background in Senegalese cooking. It might transfer, travel well to other cultures.
3: Oh, I think all of it travels well. I mean, all my cooking is inspired from from that tradition. You know, all I do is really go back home and observe the women. I say the women because that's that's them who cook at home. You know, that's uh, traditionally the kitchen in Senegal is a gender based activity. So women are the one who belong to the kitchen, and for me. The The best school is just to sit and observe the women cooking. And uh, there's just uh, always something I get from it. I mean, just the movement, the dance, there's like a certain way, certain grace that's like always accompanying their cooking. And that's something you don't learn in, in, in cooking schools. Just watching my mother or my aunt Preparing um, kanja which is uh, the the ancestor of the gumbo that you have here, it's it's just um, that moment, just spending time with her, and I can definitely taste the food and connect it with the way she she moves, the way she she's um, she's in the kitchen. There's like this passion that's just um, that I I hope I'm translating in the book.
2: That was Pierre Thiam, he's author of Senegal, Modern Senegalese Recipes from the Source to the Bowl. You know, I was struck by Pierre's description of a taya, A-T-T-A-Y-A, it's the ritual tea that comes in three cups. The first cup is bitter, just like life. The next cup is milder, just like love. And the third cup is sweet, just like the breath of death. In Senegal, death and life are intimately connected. Life is bitter, death is sweet. And be sure to always spill a few drops on the ground for the dead. Right now, it's time to talk to regular guest Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Welcome back
9: to Milk Street. It's always great to be here. And uh, what revealing bit of philosophy do you have this week? So I thought we might talk about the food stamp program, otherwise known as SNAP, and some of the recent evidence that comes out of how it might perhaps be used in a better way to help us, you know, combat obesity. Okay. So for a long time you know we've talked about or we've known that that being poor is associated with obesity and sometimes people find it hard to grasp how that can be that you know somebody who perhaps has bad access to food could also be obese that, that you know and some people have even taken it so far as to try to claim therefore that food stamps are causing obesity and that's not the case it just it becomes that it's harder to eat healthy and sometimes more nutrient or caloric calorie dense food is cheaper so sometimes people who are poor also tend to to be heavier and more unhealthy. So people have tried to take that sometimes to to change the food stamp program or to to change how we give out SNAP benefits. And a lot of people have fought against that because, of course, it it seems wrong to to stigmatize people uh, who are poor or to try to control what people eat. But there have been some recent studies which show that, that there might be promise in actually doing that, that a recent, actually a study. I think it was in, in Minnesota, if I remember correctly. But what they did was they took people who were eligible for food stamps but hadn't yet entered the program, and they randomized them to a number of different groups. Some people got regular old, you know, cards which allowed them to buy food. Some people got extra money, in other words, bonuses if they bought healthy food. Some people actually you know were not or prohibited from buying sugar dense food things like desserts and some people got both the bonuses extra money if they bought healthy food and sort of the penalty, you know the, the restrictions that they couldn't buy on healthy food and what they found was that the group that had both the restrictions and the bonuses actually consumed fewer calories and fewer discretionary calories than any of the other groups that it turns out that doing both of these things trying to incentivize people, to eat more healthily and also help them not buy the food that would be unhealthy, that seemed to do the most in, in helping them to, 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 to perhaps lose weight in the long term.
2: Now, haven't some communities tied food stamps to farmers' markets? You could redeem them at farmers'
9: markets? They have, and those would be more along the lines of what I would consider to be bonuses or carrots. In other words, they seem to be more comfortable, at least the food stamp program does, with helping people to buy healthier food. They do not seem very comfortable with restricting unhealthy food. And part of the problem is that, as this study showed, just doing the bonuses doesn't really seem to change people's overall caloric mm. intake um, or their, their their sort of intake of discretionary calories, that you need both the good things and the restrictions. And, and that's part of the problem. I think it's sort of ironic, given that we have other programs in the federal government that already help people to get food, and those seem to have no problem with restrictions. The school lunch program, for instance, has a huge list of things which are prohibited and which which can't be used. The WIC program, the Women, Infant, and Child program, also has a big list of things which are not allowed to be purchased uh, with, with the support that we provide to women who are pregnant nursing or, or, you know, have little kids. We just seem to be unable to do this with food stamps. And while I certainly don't want to stigmatize, you know, people on the food stamp program, it seems a little odd that, that this is the one program where we don't feel comfortable uh, in trying to take steps to help people eat more healthily.
2: Now, b- being somewhat cynical, I might say, you know, follow the money. Is that because the money involved in the food stamp program is so large that you're dealing with corporate interests or lobbying?
9: Well, that's an interesting idea. I think that could absolutely be part of it. You know, certainly, you know, changes and restrictions are always fought in that way. I also think that this is, you know, sometimes this, these programs are defended by, by people, even I would say very progressive people, who fear that what this can look or appear to be is that we're stigmatizing the poor. I we're see. telling you know, people who are poor, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, we're going to restrict what you eat, but other people can eat whatever they want. And you don't, you know, there's a danger in that. And certainly we have to be sensitive to that kind of thinking as well um, as you make changes like this in the program. But as we see obesity becoming a bigger and bigger problem, we want to think about all the things we can do to help people avoid it. And we seem comfortable making these kinds of changes in another program. It may be time to start thinking them at least in a trial basis or with perhaps more research to see if we can use the SNAP or the food stamp program to do this as well.
2: Isn't it interesting, though, that through most of our history in the 20th century, like the you know, home economists in the 30s during the Depression, they were perfectly happy to tell people what to eat, right? I mean, they, yeah. even FDR was dining on like stewed prunes all the time right, in the White House uh, due to his wife wanting to eat what everyone else ate. And, and yet in this case, we seem to be hesitant. So usually we have no problem with governments telling us what to do.
9: We don't. This is one of those programs, though, where it's been very difficult to touch. us. And this study is fascinating because it's the first study of its kind. That's how difficult it is to make changes in the SNAP program, we can't even use it to do research purposes. So they actually had to find people who weren't yet on the program and set up a whole different sort of mock program even to test it. We can't even do research or small scale studies to see what might or might not work because it's so hard to make changes in these types of programs.
2: So the, at the end of the day, your
9: suggestion is is what? So I think it's I think it's worthwhile to at least study this. I mean we've we've seen other cities have actually put in applications. I mean New York has always been on the forefront of trying to you know, restrict what people can and can't eat, or what they, you know, where they might have to pay taxes. I mean, they even, you know, restricted soda size not long ago, and that and that really worked out well for them. <laughs> uh, it was not a good thing. But but regardless, they've actually applied, as have other cities and states, to to try these types of changes on a trial basis, and they keep being denied by the federal government. Huh. It might be worth it to at least allow some of these pilot programs to to go and to see what happens. And if it turns out that I'm wrong, if it turns out that the prior research is wrong, and that it doesn't work or that it backfires at least we'll know. But if it turns out that it does work, it might be worth knowing.
2: Dr. Aaron Carroll, it's time to take a fresh look at food stamps and try to offer healthier alternatives. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics and a regular contributor to the New York Times. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, who's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com.
1: Hold up.
2: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're going to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of questions? I sure am. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
0: This is Jean from 207.
2: 207. And that, that, that's an area code in Maine, I know.
6: Where is that in Maine? I want to know.
0: I'm from Yarmouth, Maine, which hmm. is uh, just north of Portland.
6: Oh, I love Maine. I love Portland how can we help you?
0: Well, I have a question. I have such a severe food allergy to balsamic vinegar that I now need to carry an EpiPen with me. I've tried using red wine vinegar mixed with honey or agave, but it just doesn't seem to have the same look or consistency. What can I use as a replacement when a recipe calls for balsamic vinegar?
2: Okay, this is really annoying, but here's the answer because I do it. For years, I made fun of people who told me about pomegranate molasses. I was
6: just going to say pomegranate if you get, molasses. If you get a,
2: it's the best thing in the world. Get a bottle. Really? Yeah, yes. It, it, I add Fantastic. it to stews and all sorts of things. Anyway, red wine vinegar, add just a cap full of pomegranate molasses to it and then the oil and salt. And it will give you very much a balsamic flavor.
0: Okay. So red wine vinegar...
6: Pomegranate molasses, yeah,
2: just like a capful in a capsule? with vinegar of to the, taste of the
6: red wine vinegar.
2: No, just put like the red wine vinegar in a bowl, add like a capful of pomegranate molasses oh, really? to it because I'd say, salt.
6: I'd say use it straight up. You think it's too thick to use all by itself
2: if you're making a vinaigrette?
6: Oh, you want it for vinaigrette. Yes. Well,
2: um you want it for too. balsamic vinegar, right? So you need vinegar. But there's vinegar.
6: so many things, you know, right. it's funny. There's so many things you use balsamic for, I'm thinking. Right. Like if the
2: recipe calls for a reduction. But you want the acidity of mm-hmm. to combine because pomegranate molasses is not really acidic, it's just sweet. Shh.
6: I think it's got some good acidity. I drink it out of the bottle. All right, all right. You're an authority. (laughs) It does, but a little
2: red wine vinegar gives you that balance. You can fool around with the ratios, but I would have red wine vinegar and pomegranate molasses.
0: Okay. I'm going to give that a try. Sounds
2: awesome. I don't work for the pomegranate molasses board. No, so. and there is no one anyway. So, <laughs> Well, to be honest with you,
0: I've never heard of pomegranate molasses.
2: You know, it's funny in the food world that you hear something. I remember in 1980, the first time I really thought about goat cheese. You know, it wasn't part of And then I ate goat cheese and thought it was strange. And, of course, everybody eats goat cheese now. It's just one of those things that have sort of turned into something we know about. You can get it in almost any supermarket.
6: Pomegranate molasses? Yes, Come on, get well, with it. I was going to say it's a lot more available than it used or, to be. Or
2: go to Amazon and buy it. But it's right. something you should have. It I also, agree.
6: I agree. It's a fantastic it's, ingredient. With a
2: stew, for example, it's one of those things you can add at the end. Mm-hmm. And it adds uh-huh. a really interesting flavor. It does. So it's one of those secret pantry ingredients that makes things better.
6: I agree.
0: I will get some. Okay. I love the suggestion.
2: Okay,
6: give it a shot.
0: <laughs> All right, thanks.
6: Hello, who do we have on the line?
0: Hi, this is Mary Beth Mayoza.
6: So what is your question?
0: My question is, how do I read a recipe or interpret a recipe that reads six tablespoons of fresh basil, comma, minced? Do I rough chop the basil, measure it, and then mince it, or do I mince the fresh basil and then measure it?
6: This is where the order of words is really key. If the word minced or chopped is before the herb, That means it was measured after it was whatever was done to it. If it's after, then you had the whole herb and then you minced or chopped it. Yeah, but
2: wait, hold on. Here's the problem. How do you? I don't understand. How do you measure basil? Basil or basil or parsley? How do you measure? You know, a quarter cup or four tablespoons. You can't measure five tablespoons of parsley unless you've. Chopped Chopped it. it. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, which is why
6: I would always write it that way, but not everybody does. If
2: I saw a recipe that said five tablespoons parsley, comma, chopped or minced, I would mince it first, and then I would measure the tablespoons. Well,
6: that's probably what they meant, but that's not how they wrote it. But in terms of general understanding of language in recipes, if it's before the item, it was done... The item was chopped and then measured. If it's after the item, you...
2: well, it would be like one cup flour, comma, sifted, right, versus one cup sifted flour. Right. But that makes sense, yes. But herbs does no, it no, just it doesn't. Makes no sense. But though.
6: one thing I did want to say, just a general rule, is herbs mm-hmm. shrink by roughly half when you chop them. So let's, they do. yes, they do. So yeah. if you're given one of those weird things, six tablespoons of minced parsley. You would want to roughly start with 12 tablespoons. Eyeball what you think. I mean, I agree with Chris. It's hard to measure, but eyeball well, it.
2: A, it doesn't matter because <laughs> it's just parsley. Yeah. So if you had 10 <laughs> tablespoons versus six, who really cares? And secondly, most people in the world, other than here, weigh things. So they'll say, you know, 50 grams or something. And you know, Even with herbs? Well, with a large amount of herbs, they will. The thing is, it doesn't matter. Parsley, six tablespoons, four tablespoons, Okay, no, but if it was
6: tarragon, it would. It would. Okay, rosemary, it would. True that. Yeah. Yes. Okay, but anyway, I think we generally answered your question. I think you did. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring. That number, of course, is 1-855-4-BOWTIE. 855-426-9843. Also, email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Of course, you can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also at our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is something old and something new. You know, I haven't used a compound butter since the 1970s, but we came up with a totally different way to do it. Here's what we do. Instead of herbs, we're going to take five tablespoons of miso and combine that with four tablespoons of softened butter, mash them together in a small bowl with a fork. It's really good over hot pasta. We like soba noodles for that. But it also works on almost everything from blanched vegetables to a steak right off the grill. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk with Damon Burrell. He's author of Native Harvest. In a New Yorker profile last year entitled The Most Exclusive Restaurant in America, journalist Nick Palmgarden tried to suss out the truth about Burrell's claims regarding his upstate New York restaurant that, by the way, charges 400 bucks per person. He has a 10-year waiting list, no employees. He forages for most of his ingredients on his 12 acres in upstate New York. And he has an approach to cooking that is beyond locavore, such as making flour from tree bark. I spoke with Burrell to see if I could separate fact from fiction. So I'll start with high praise. Quote, it was incredible. This is talking about your restaurant. High quality, precisely cooked, the flavor profile, each course so well thought out, it was almost too surreal to believe. So there you are in New York State, and uh, you've done something quite different. Do you want to just tell us briefly how it's different and, and why you're doing it? The whole basis of it is the 12-acre property, Um,
8: and this occurred to me like one day 30 years ago. I had a life-changing epiphany when I realized that everything I needed was here on the property. And I was going to try to spend my life, you know, exploring what was possible with the native plants here and developing and creating components. But uh, the biggest question mark was, w- were people going to embrace this and let me share it with them? And um, it's been a long, slow process, you know, over the years. But it uh, it really seems that folks really enjoy the concept of, uh, you know, just dining with what's here on the property. And it's a way of life. It really is a way of life.
2: I, I read the book actually pretty carefully, and I, you know, I'm in Vermont a lot of the time with property, and you seem to have much better stuff on your land than I have on my land <laughs> because I can't find that much. Maybe it's just I'm not looking hard enough. But you make your own flowers, syrups, you do a lot of things. How do you? You're sourcing all the ingredients, most of them. And you're creating something with them. It's just a massive amount of work for a restaurant to do all that work.
8: Well, that's so nice you to say. But, you know, Chris, I don't think of it as work. I think that's the, the key point right there. Is it's just how I live my life, and I love it. I, I mean, I spend just as much, if you know, if not more time, creating the many components. You know, the flour, the process I go through, and it just really, I really love it, and uh, I don't want that to change. And um, you know, it's um, you know, normally, you know, when you get into this business, you're uh, the idea is you're going to get you know assistants and cooks, and you're going to delegate, and the whole goal it seems is to get out of the kitchen, where I really wanted to do more and interact with every guest. So I did the complete opposite. You know, I went from having staff and everything to working completely alone.
2: How did you figure out, for example, how to take the inner bark of the maple tree, turn that into flower, like how long it took? how did you figure it out?
8: Well, you know, it all started as as a kid, as a child. It was a different era. You know, you went out and played all day and explored. And, uh, you know, there was no—we didn't have TV when we used to come to the area and stuff. So you just went out and played. And I started bringing home these native plants for my mother to see because I just liked the way they looked. And I did end up with some rashes many times, but, you know, there was no internet then. So she would do the research. She would either write letters or go to the library because she was an avid gardener, but she didn't, you know, wasn't familiar with the native plants. And I remember the very first one was like the sumac. And, you know, we made a sumac lemonade. But by the time I was a teenager, I had this kind of real base knowledge of native plants and what was edible, what wasn't edible. And I just thought it was useless knowledge, to be quite honest with you. It was, um, wasn't was something I thought I was ever going to, to use And then it just clicked one day uh, between the cooking and the native plants that I really wanted to have the cuisine be something uh, unique to America, you know, not based on the melting pot, which is great, but it just wasn't something I was interested in. Nature seems to have all the answers, you know, if you're just willing to take the time to watch.
2: So, okay, I I go to uh, a fancy restaurant in Paris. I go to the hottest new restaurant in down, you know, Soho in New York. Or I go to your restaurant, which is almost impossible to get into. Uh, (laughs) Just explain, you know, it's it's a bunch of courses, maybe almost 20 courses over five hours. It's 400 bucks a seat. Could you give us just the once over lightly some of the highlights of of what you'd be serving? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know,
8: you might have a cracker made out of pine flour, butternut oil, duck egg white powder, um, again, you know, the flour takes a you know 14 months to create. The butternut oil, I might only have less than a quart of that for the whole year to use. Some of the mushrooms, I've been a mushroom forager for over 30 years. So what I'll do is I'll toss some mushrooms that I grew on logs or foraged wild, toss them in some butternut oil, cook them on a, on a stone or a slab of smoldering wood, and that's one bite. Then I might serve something with daylily tubers. Um, you know, then we'll go into some seafood. I do serve seafood from time to time. But the folks always seem to enjoy more what goes with the seafood. If I'll cook like a prawn in cherry sap, or I'll cook a fresh scallop or some lobster on a slab of bluestone and serve it with a goldenrod sauce. Then we'll go into some meat courses. And all in between, I do cleansing palate cleansers. That's a real challenge, you know, when you serve 20 to 25 courses is keeping guests' palates cleansed. So I do these sugarless ice and slush preparations, everything from Queensland lace root to wild violets, sumac. And I thicken these ice and slushes with wild violet leaves and stems,
2: which have a natural thickening effect. And- there, there was a photograph in your book of tomato bacon, which really— Yeah. St- yeah. That, that was pretty cool. So it, it also an <laughs> incredible pain to make. So how do you make that? Yes.
8: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, that was, again, something where, you know, when you got so many tomatoes, what do you do with these things? And, you know, this is a real farm. It's a 12-acre farm. We have a little self-serve farm stand and everything. So we always grow different kinds of tomatoes. And, again, just try to do something a little different with them, something fun, and got the idea to make like a bacon. And it's a, it, it really not overly complicated. It just takes time to essentially dry them and soak them. And what you do in the meantime is you reform it and flatten it out each time a little bit more. And finally, by the very end, it gets very crispy and crunchy, and you can serve it like a little piece of bacon.
2: Uh, Okay. Let's talk about a couple things normal people could actually cook. (laughs) I I don't want to say you're abnormal, but obviously you are. You wouldn't Uh, be the first. (laughs) Yeah. So sumac chicken wings. That sounds like something someone could almost make at home. So how do you make sumac chicken wings? Yeah. You're talking about the
8: sumac, and that's just like the cattails, like the ferns. The flavor changes. Sumac, certain times of the year, it's very kind of acidic. It's like salty. Sometimes it's berry-like. And other times, it's almost like a burnt, like a caramelized honey. It's a little lemony, lemony, isn't
2: it, too, sort of?
8: Yeah. Yeah. So you just essentially... soak or brine the chicken wings in that powder rather than salt. But again, you can add salt if you'd like, but you really don't have to. And then it's essentially you want to do is kind of cook the wings. You could cook them either in sap or in water or even in a broth, and then you you can actually store them. Then when you're ready to serve them, you can crisp them, you know, in a pan or on a stone or on a grill, and then uh, toss with a little more of the sumac powder. And you've got something kind of a, um, I don't want to say a true American, uh, Native American kind of chicken wing.
2: I like the fact that you have a restaurant in the basement of your house, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and people yeah, come yeah. from all over the world to pay $400 to have dinner for 18 or 20 or 25 courses. Uh, you know, there is something just lovely about that, isn't there? It's, it's poetic, poetic justice. And, maybe, the, you know. and you know people ask about the price, too,
8: but what goes into it? It Really, it is mind-boggling when you think about, you know, the hundreds of hours of preparation and, and uh, getting things ready, you know, and, and it's just like we joke around that, you know, what the price of a loaf of bread should and A lot of times bread is just, you know, think of it as a giveaway or a throwaway course. I mean, I have put more effort into producing the breads than anything else to have enough flour on hand. You know, I'm working on flour. I have to soak some some pine bark and some cedar. I have to soak now that I won't be serving that probably for another year, but I have to do that this week. So it's all... A lot goes into it. A lot goes into it.
2: Have you ever been asked the question and, and you couldn't, you were speechless? <laughs> you, you, you really, I mean, every time I ask something well, where I thought like, well, I don't remember that recipe. You have, you have no, like no, 28 uh, points to make about it. It's, it's, it's impressive. Well, you
8: know, that's what I say when, when folks ask me why I do what I do. I mean, imagine, Chris, being able to do this. Every day and sharing this with people, essentially in your home, I am the luckiest person in the world and uh, I never take
2: that for granted. That was Damon Burrell, chef, farmer and author of Native Harvest. My interview with Damon Burrell deserved just one final word. You know, I'm not an investigative reporter. I've never been to Burrell's restaurant, so I can't opine on his claims, his food or even the sourcing of his ingredients. But I can say from my interview that he's smart, he's energetic, and anyone who can make flour out of bark knows more about cooking than I do. And that's enough for me, whether the emperor is wearing clothes or not. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio, and special thanks this week to the International Fund for Agricultural Development Recipes for Change series, which provided audio of Senegalese women cooking. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week.
1: Christopher Kimball's
0: Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production Assistant Carly Helmetagg. Senior Audio Engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sidney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help, Debbie Paddock. Theme Music by 2Bob Crew. Additional Music by George Brandall eggloff Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.